good morning all. My name is Clay, if we have not met before. If you haven't met me before, why don't you come and say hi after the service? Not that you need to, not that that would be the highlight of your week, I'm sure, but come and say hi. I always like to make new friends. Wisdom is a topic that we've been uh, looking at together for a, a few months now. Wisdom, meaning godly wisdom, spiritually imbued, developed through ongoing discipleship and sanctification. The, re- the only real wisdom. But as I shared a month ago, wisdom is only as much use as it is actioned. It is no good whatsoever to have God's wisdom if you don't allow it to guide your path and actually live by it. King Solomon, as we explored last month, was a man God anointed to be the wisest man that history would ever know. And yet he lived a life marked by very unwise decisions. He often lived by his flesh and not God's wisdom. And his flesh led him down a path of immorality and ultimately idolatry as he took up the worship of the foreign gods of his foreign wives who he was very unwise to marry in the first place. It is not then without reason that Jesus declared that the greatest commandment was to love God not only with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, but also with all your strength. The devotion of our heart, the theology of our mind, needs to find ultimate expression in our flesh, in our actions. Faith, as the Apostle James said, faith without deeds is dead. My study in loving God with all my strength does not start in strength because my journey with God does not start in strength. It starts in weakness, my weakness, recognizing that weakness. King David was a man who no one can claim had a faith that was dead. His deeds for the Lord are legendary, but he did not always choose the wise path. In fact, he once chose a path that was not just unwise, it was unconscionable. It is hard to imagine doing what he did, impossible to imagine him doing what he did. We know the story from Second Samuel chapter 11. And if you have the word with you, you can turn there now.
in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Now there's a reason why I read that whole account and didn't just summarize it. And that's because I didn't want us to make the mistake that David just had a mere one day, that he just made a mistake. David didn't just make a mistake. He was living in weakness. He was living outside of God's will. What actually happened here is the worst possible outcome from where he was at spiritually and where he was at physically. How could David, a man after God's own heart, 
a man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. A man who said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How does his flesh win such a victory over his God-loving heart? David fell from his way well before he saw Bathsheba. David should never have seen Bathsheba bathing on the roof. We could miss it because it sounds like a prologue and backstory, but I believe the opening sentence of this passage is crucial. He had a high calling from God. He was Israel's king, her champion, the greatest warrior that they had ever known. And God used him for that purpose. He was chosen to lead the people, to lead God's army, to vanquish God's enemies. But instead of leading the army in God's righteous cause, he relinquished his responsibilities. He stayed home at the palace at the time when kings go to war. He didn't go to war with his people. He sent another in his place. And gifting the devil his idleness to play with. The devil played indeed. David was not where he was meant to be. He had stepped out of God's will. And outside of God's will, he encountered temptation that he did not have the strength to overcome. The first lesson that I learned from the story, and it's one that I've carried most of my, my time in faith, is that anyone can fall. I've often identified more with David in Scripture than I have with Christ. The reason being that Jesus is God. Too lofty for me to attain. But David, great as he was, is just a man. A great man. A man that God made great, but still just a man. And amongst his greatness is this brokenness. Who else has the highs and lows of this man? God's champion defeating a giant as a boy, leading the army to conquer thousands, no, tens of thousands. And the whole time staying faithful, even though the man he devoted himself to follow, King Saul, was hunting him down to kill him. He stayed faithful to him. He stayed faithful to God. And God blessed him. Blessed him on the battlefield. Blessed him in his governance. And Israel grew and prospered. He found so much comfort and wisdom in God's word. He wrote so many psalms which extol just how beautiful and comforting, strengthening God's word is. He wrote the most beautiful songs to God. And God said of him, here is a man after my own heart. But then this, the same man 
could do this. As evil as I know myself to be, I can't imagine doing what he did. A man who clearly knows God and I believe loves God more than I do. So I know if he can fall, oh, I can fall. I can fall. David was weak. He was fallible. He was human. But we need to recognize that so are we. We need the self-awareness that we are sinners. Now, while I believe that I have a new identity in Christ, I believe I'm forgiven, I'm redeemed, I'm a new creation. At the same time as being a new creation, I need to recognize that the old me is still alive. And if I pretend he's not there, he will trip me up time and time again. While God looks at me and sees an image of his son, that is an ideal that he chooses to do. He knows the reality of me as well, and he chooses to love me despite that. And when I ignore my flesh, my sinful self, it is at my peril. Because he will drag me down time and time again. We need to know this about ourselves and understand the power that our flesh can have over us so that we can do something about it, so that we can allow God to do something about it. I want what God does not want for me. I desire ungodly things. I'm selfish. I'm proud. I'm weak. But knowing that actually empowers me. It empowers me to let it go. It empowers me to give that to God. It empowers me to press into discipleship, to allow God to sanctify me through my brothers and sisters around me. It drives me to the Word. It keeps me motivated. So I'm not going to wallow in my muck. But because I know I'm mucky, I can get to seeing that cleaned up. Obviously not in my own strength, but his. But it must start with an awareness. Knowing this illuminates the ground around me so that I can, I can see that where I am is not where he wants me to be. Not where he wants to lead me to. But I need to know where I am. Because of this, I can now fathom the vast gulf between where I am and where he wants to lead me. And if we are ignorant of our true condition, there will be no awareness, no will to motivate us to be better than we are now. We know the expression, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. David wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's an excuse we can use you know, to excuse the mistakes we made, but David wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was in the wrong place, full stop. He was 
living in the wrong place. His life was in the wrong place. He didn't make a mistake with Bathsheba. He made a mistake with walking away from the anointing that God had put in his life, the calling. He put that aside and sent another in his place. That was where it fell apart. The incident with Bathsheba is just a symptom of that. David set himself up for a fall by stepping away from God's will, from the responsibilities of his calling. David put his flesh in a position where temptation, into a position where he pit his flesh against his heart and his mind. David knew what was right and what was wrong. He was the man who wrote, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are right, giving joy. Commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. This makes no sense. How can that be your heart position one day, one season, and then you fall where you fell, David? David knew both God's law and his own human frailty. He knew his weakness and he prayed for God's help to overcome it, to see what was at the root of it, to reveal it. But despite this, David rejected God's wisdom. He put aside the call and he put himself in a situation that would stack the odds in favour of his flesh winning out over his spirit. Many years later, the Apostle Paul would write to the Romans, chapter 8, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. At this point, it doesn't matter if you know God's word, if you know his law. Because if you're living by the flesh, you will reject it every time. And it will be worse because you have greater revelation of him to be rejecting. Sadly for David, and of course for Uriah, in that season of his life, David's mind was governed by his flesh. David would never have fallen for Bathsheba, would not have seen her if he was where he was supposed to be, if he was where God had anointed him to be. 
wise choices are easier to make when we are living in the wisdom of his will. When we set out on our own path, we desert his wisdom. And the fruit we will bear is the corruption of our sinful flesh. Because now that directs our path. Paul spoke at length on this to the Galatians through chapter 5 and chapter 6. Galatians 6, 8 says, Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Chapter 5 from verse 16 So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are are not to do whatever you want. And chapter 5 from verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Putting aside the inevitability that we will stumble, that we will sin, that we will not run a clean, perfect race, but we will make mistakes. Putting that aside, are you today living in God's will? Are you where he has called you to be? Are you doing what he has called you to do. Think about your vocation, your relationships, how you use your time. Think about the direction of your life. Think of the words that he has spoken over you through scripture or through prophets. Are you living in his will? Are you where he has sent you? David wasn't, and his flesh overcame him. And as a result, he slept with another man's wife and engineered his death. In this instance, David did not overcome. But there's another story of a man who did. And we read that story in Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, 
My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Luke 24:44 tells us that being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus knew his Father's will. He knew the scriptures. He knew the prophecies. He had the wisdom of God. But his flesh was failing him. He knew what he should do, what he was supposed to do. But his flesh overwhelmed him with anxiety. Was he tempted to give up? Was he tempted to walk away? That would not surprise me. For that is one of the things that the devil tempted him with in the wilderness. Instead of the path that was laid out before him as Messiah, the devil offered him another path. You can have all the kingdoms, all the world. I have authority to give that to you if only you will bow down before me. You don't have to go that way. You don't, have to, you don't have to suffer. Just bow to me and I'll give you all of this. That and the weakness of his flesh is what the devil brought to him. But at that time, Jesus rebuked him. We will worship, I will worship God and God alone. And then launched directly into a ministry that would lead him directly to the cross. But this night, when his hour has finally come, that confidence is gone. His flesh is welled up. And it is overcoming him. So what does he do? He prayed. When his flesh was failing, he surrendered to the Spirit and he prayed. He recognized his weakness and he took it to the Father. We don't tend to really talk about our mighty Savior being weak. 
But we do that because we tend not to emphasize his humanity. Scripture is clear that he was fully human. And that he suffered all the temptations that we face. The difference being, in the strength of God, he was able to overcome. So yes, he was weak, but he didn't break. And he didn't break because he called on his father. And his father heard him. Oh, I find this so much harder being a father now because I cannot imagine myself in the seat of the father that night, knowing what lay before my child. But in that moment, the father gave him the strength that he needed to finish the call, to finish the mission. And we are here today and we are saved for eternity because he did I can't emphasize this enough, that our strength is not strong enough. And unlike Christ, I don't face the cross, not in the way that he does. My battles are little, they are miserable for the most part. But even then, my strength is not strong enough. We don't overcome in our strength. We overcome with His. Jesus did not overcome in the strength within Himself. He needed more than that. And so He reached out to His Father. All the strength that we, that we are to love God with is all the strength that He has given us. Any strength in me, any real strength in you, is what he has given you. And he continues to give us strength to build us up as our own fallen flesh dies off. As we kill it off, as we offer it continually to him as a living sacrifice. Jesus' flesh was breaking. His mind was overcome. He knew what he needed. He knew that to overcome, he needed the comfort and counsel of his father. And so in his moment of weakness, he cried out. And his father did not desert him. And he does not desert us. He has promised never to leave us or forsake us. And he is true to his word. Another thing I, I learned from this story reading into what Jesus what Jesus did was he didn't just pray himself. He asked those who were closest to him, those that walked with him, to come and pray with him as well. And he was sorely disappointed when they failed him in that. He needed them around him. God had surrounded Jesus with these men, not just so that they would be built up to establish the church after Jesus left. They were there for his support as well. 
not that night they weren't. And so Jesus' comfort came directly from God alone. I have no doubt that his troubles that night would have been a lot easier to carry if those men had stood with him. And so that's what Jesus modelled for us. That we are to carry each other's burdens. It takes a pretty special rabbi, teacher, leader, to expose his vulnerability the way he did to those men that night. And in an ideal world, those men would have seen Jesus' trouble and it would have moved them, motivated them to stand with him, to pray with him, to comfort him. It seems to be the way that God prefers to work, that he prefers to work through others through his church that's why he gives the church spiritual gifts so that we can disciple one another support one another pastor one another encourage one another that's why it says in hebrews do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but continue to meet and all the more as you see the day approaching We're supposed to do this together. So the disciples let Jesus down that night. Let's not let each other down. Jesus invited them in to his weakness, exposed his trouble. We need to do the same. We need to put pride aside so that we can reveal our weakness so that others can stand with us, others can support us, others can pray with us, as we recognise that we are all weak. We are all broken. We all need each other. And when we try to do it alone, we are setting ourselves up to fail. The prayerful support of my discipleship group has been a constant crutch for Leslie and I over the years. And that's what it's supposed to be, a crutch. People talk about a crutch being a bad thing in a spiritual context. It's not at all. You need a crutch when you can't walk properly. A crutch enables you to walk despite the pain and the disability you're carrying. And there are times when I need my brothers walking with me to hold me up. Because without them, I will collapse in a mess. Physically, possibly, definitely spiritually. And this is what we do for each other. We, we hold each other up. In the end, God gave Jesus the strength to endure, to see his journey through. Jesus found the strength in the Father because he was in God's will. He was where he was supposed to be because he was honest about his weakness and his need for support. And because he prayed, taking his weakness and his need to the Father. Our strength 
to love God and finish our race is found in Him. And we will find it when we know our weakness and we take it to Him, inviting our spiritual family to walk with us and share that burden as we share theirs. This is the wisdom of God, and it is messy. It is messy, because we are messy. But it is the only way. And this is how we will overcome. Will you pray with me now? You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, no one knows us better than you do. You know us better than we know ourselves. Lord, I pray that you'd reveal to us our anxious ways, the brokenness that is in us, exposing it to the light, Lord, that we can see you heal that brokenness, cleanse the filth from us, and lead us, Lord, in your will. I pray, Lord, that you would empower us 
build the self-control within us, to stand firm to what we know is true, to live by the wisdom that you're revealing to us. Lord, I pray for the pride within us to crumble and fall, that we can be vulnerable when we need to be and share our weakness with each other, just as your son did. I pray, Lord, that our love for each other would grow, that we'd be able to stand there for each other, supporting each other in trial. And Lord, I pray most of all that you would help us to love you with all that we have, with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. That you would pour out a fresh deposit of your love into us that would equip us to love you back and to love each other. Thank you, Lord, that this is your will for us. And we commit ourselves again to you today in Jesus' name. Amen.